I've had an exciting, interesting week because on Friday I was invited to participate in a memorial time for the county officers who have given their life in the line of duty in the last year. It was conducted down at the sheriff's uh, office adjacent to the uh, county jail and had families there whose uh, loved ones have lost their life, had representatives there from the ATF, from the FBI, from the city police, from the uh, Texas Department of Public Safety. It was a marvelous time of memory and memorializing people who have served God by serving others and in so doing uh, have paid the supreme sacrifice. And I was honored to be a part of that and to share in it and sat there looking into the faces of uh, the survivors of some of the victims. One little girl, oh, about uh, five or six, and her mother uh, came up to receive a recognition and an award for father and husband who had been killed. I looked at them and I thought, boy, that's a big mountain to climb. That's a tough hill to scale. And then yesterday afternoon I was invited. I've been there before on a number of other occasions and hope to be going back. I was invited to be the uh, commencement speaker for the Blessed Sacrament Academy. This is a marvelous ministry that is directed by the Sisters of the Incarnate Word. And uh, this is a second chance high school. This is for kids who couldn't make it. Family problems, legal problems. A juvenile detention centers not more than four or five blocks away, and some of them had spent some time there. And I go, uh, I don't know how much encouragement or help I may be to them, but I go because of the tremendous inspiration I get from being there. Now, if next time I do it and I'll be invited back, at least they asked me yesterday if I would. Of course I would. I'd, I'd love for you to go along. I guarantee you it'll do something for your spirit. Uh, 30, uh, let's see, 32 graduated uh, yesterday. They have four graduating classes a year. It's interesting to know that uh, 500, more than 500 young people have graduated from this Second Chance High School. Over uh, half of them went on to college. 25% of them went into the military. And approximately 20% of them got jobs here in San Antonio. Their statistics reveal that 96% of their graduates have a record of success. That's better than Harvard and any other, Princeton or Yale or any other great university. And one of the interesting, wonderful things about it is that everybody in the class is considered a valedictorian. That's right. They're all valedictorians. They've made it. And so they just throw it open and say, all of you that want to, come up here and say anything you want to. Three to four hundred people there packing that uh, gymnasium out there on Mission Road uh, at, the, at the Blessed uh, Sacrament Academy. And I tell you that every one of them come up there and start talking and they just break down and start crying. 
One young man got up there and he said, I said, my mother said, my father had already gone and said, my mother left me when I was 16. I was left alone. So I had to find a place to live. Started working 43 hours a week on a job and trying to go to school here at the same time. Said, I got so discouraged and wanted to quit. Said, I wanted to quit nearly every week. Gave, wanted to give up. But he said, the sisters here and the teachers here and some of my friends kept saying to me, Steve, you can do it. You can do it. And he started crying and he said, I've done it. That's a big hill to climb. Big hill to climb. All of us have hills to climb. Which is why I want to speak this morning on a passage of scripture from the Psalms, 121st Psalm. I spoke on this uh, a few Wednesday nights ago. I'm going to do it a little differently today than I did then. Uh, Incidentally, it's not the title that's in the bulletin that I had uh, planned to preach uh, earlier in the week. But uh, Friday and Saturday just reminded me of the fact that a lot of people are facing mountains out there. Maybe a financial hill you have to climb. Maybe a physical one. Maybe a family problem. Maybe a personal one. But this is one of the Psalms that's called the Psalms of Ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T. They had a group of psalms or songs that they would sing while they were on their way to the the city of Jerusalem, on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, there's only one way to get to Jerusalem, and that is to go uphill. Because Jerusalem is about 2,400, 2,500 feet above sea level. It's only 25 miles from the Mediterranean, which means there's a 2,500-foot drop from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. On the eastern side of Jerusalem, it drops down into the Jordan Valley. And that's 1,400 feet below sea level. So Jerusalem is literally a city set upon a hill. It sits there on this rock promontory sticking out high above the Kidron Valley on the, on the east and the Valley of Gehenna on the right. And they join together at the bottom there. And the only vulnerable Side to the city of Jerusalem is from the north, which is why they would build all of their walls there. So this 121st Psalm is one of the songs they would sing as they were on pilgrimage, going up to the city of Jerusalem. And this verse of scripture has been used uh, and misused, but it's still even in its misuse is a blessing. If you've ever been to the mountains, you've been to Colorado, you've been to the Alps, you see these little plaques in gift stores, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my strength. Well, mountains are an inspiration to me. They're wonderful, I suppose, for all of us to look at and see the magnificence of God. And that's true. It's true. They are an inspiration. But you need to remember these people were not sitting in a lodge drinking coffee, looking out at the snow-capped peaks there saying, oh, I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my strength. These folks were on foot and they were going to have to climb those mountains. 
they were going to have to go up those hills. So this is not a statement, it's a question. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where will my strength come from? Question mark. It's not an exclamation. It's a question. I lift my eyes to the mountains. New International, I read. No, New American Standard this morning. From whence shall my help come? I've got a hill to climb. You've got one. We all do. Other people may say, well, it's just a little hill. If it's yours, it can be a mountain. Like people every now and then, well, that's just a little problem. Don't let that bother you. It's like saying someone who has a speck in their eye, a little piece of dirt in their eye, and they're just crying, they can't see and trying to get it out. Somebody say, why are you worried about it? It's not a big speck. Uh, Well, it may not be a big speck to you because it's not in your eye. If it's in my eye, it looks like Mount Vesuvius. So I don't know what it is or where it is, but all of us have these hills to climb. We've had them in the past. We have some more now. We have some more in the future. That's life. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where will my strength, where will my help come from? Then he says to himself, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now I want to point out in this little short psalm that it both begins and ends with the Lord. Five different times in this psalm, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord is our hope, our help. The Lord is our hope. The Lord is our strength. And whatever the journey is we have to travel this week or next week or whenever the hill looms up before us, the first thing we need to do is to call upon the Lord. My help, if I'm going to make it, I cannot do it on my own. My help will come from the Lord. And then... A marvelous thing happens in the third verse. God shows up to talk to him. Now, I don't know how he did it. He probably did it through one of his people, a minister, a priest, a friend. But someone shows up to be the voice of God to that person having to face that big hill. And this is what he says. He will not allow your foot to slip. Now that could be fatal when traveling in the mountains. Now if you've been to Jerusalem, and many of you have, you know that the hills there are not like the Great Smoky Mountains. They are rugged, tough, rock-filled. They're more like walls than hills. In altitude, they may not be anything like what we see in the Rockies or the Alps. But they are difficult to climb because they are such precipitous piles of rocks in front of people. So it is very difficult to travel, very difficult to walk. But what he says is God speaks to this pilgrim and God speaks to you. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He's going to guide your feet. 
He is going to hold you. I read it to you a moment ago. Let me read it again. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. You're not going to fall. You may slip. You may trip. You're not going to fall. He will hold you in his hand. He will not allow your foot to slip. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. He not only will take care of your feet, he'll protect your head, your mind, your thinking. The hot sun in the middle of the day can be devastating in that part of the world. And he is saying, I will be shade, a cooling, refreshing stop that will keep your mind at ease. You will have the mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He will protect your thinking. He will guide your walking He will protect your thinking. And he will be there because he never sleeps. He doesn't even slumber. A hundred years ago, a passenger ship ran aground. Hundreds of people were killed. But one 16-year-old galley boy got into the water, made it to the rocky shore, and clung to a rock all night long before they found him. And when they found him, he was shaking with fear and with cold and with exposure. And they said, were you not afraid? Did you not shake with fear? He said, yes. But the rock never shook. The rock never shook shakes. He who keeps you is God Almighty, rock of ages. He will guide your feet. He will direct your thinking. The Lord will protect you, verse 7, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul I want you to listen to the triune protection of God. He's going to take care of your feet. He's going to take care of your thinking. He's going to take care of your soul, that eternal part of you, that spirit, your feeling. He will keep your soul. And the Lord, verse 8, will guard your going out and your coming in. He will guide your daily living. Going to work, coming home. He'll take care of you at home. He will take care of you at work. He will be with you when you go out. He will be with you 
when you come in. Now listen to this. Listen to all that God promises to keep, to take care of, to watch over. He repeats that phrase over and over and over. I believe about six times. He will keep you. He will watch over you. He will keep you and watch over you. He will direct your walking. He will direct our thinking. He will direct our feelings, controlling our feelings. And he will guide our daily living. Now you can't get more encompassing than that. The way we walk, the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we live. He controls all of life under his loving and providential care. So you see, what this psalm is saying and what the whole word of God is saying is, is that we are, in, in the words of Adolf Deisman, a famous German theologian, we are a reactive community. Now he goes on to explain. That sounds kind of confusing. We are a reactive community. God's people are. What he means by that is we react in response to God's action. God takes the initiative. We react by faith in his grace and love, which initiates with him. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so our love is a reactive love. It is a response to what God has done and to what God is doing. We are not proactive in relation to God. We are reactive in relation to God. We are therefore to be proactive in relation to the world. Having reacted in faith and love and commitment to God's initiative, we then become, as he says, his witnesses and his people who are to be proactive in the world. And the world will not understand us because they'll not know exactly where we're coming from. We're coming from a relationship with the living God who takes care of our walking and our thinking and of our feeling and of our living. And because he has taken our lives and we have become his servants, we become God's people in the world. That's why Paul said, you are God's ambassador. We are his ambassador. We're not just his messenger. We're an ambassador. If the president of the United States wants to communicate with the uh, prime minister of Great Britain, he can write a letter, go down there to the corner post office and drop it in the mail, and the prime minister will probably get the letter from the president. It's fine. But if the president of the United States wants to communicate and represent the entire United States to the people of Great Britain, how does he do it? He does it through our ambassador, who doesn't just deliver a message, but represents a kingdom 
a country, a people. And so when God says we are his ambassadors, we're not just here to give a message, we're here to represent the king. We're to be proactive. We represent God. As Paul said, standing before kings, God Almighty put me here. As Elijah said to King Ahab, after he'd stolen Naboth's vineyard by killing him and taking it, Elijah stood there and addressed Ahab and said, In the name of the living God, I meet you. And you are wrong. You have sinned against God and God will judge you. We as God's people are not just handing out messages. We are here to represent God. We are to be proactive in relation to the world, but reactive in relation to God. Now, when the church begins to lose its mission, it begins to lose its power. When the church begins to get involved in secondary issues, it loses its primary power. You don't have to look far to find it. It happened hundreds and hundreds of times in church history. But let's go back to the source, to the New Testament. Where did it all begin? Where did the disciples Have Pentecost. Where were they filled with the Holy Spirit? Where did they start making an impact upon the world? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. But as time went on, persecution arose, difficulties arose, God's people were dispersed into other parts of the world. There were some over here in this community and some over here and some over here. The church in Jerusalem pretty much stayed there. Paul went out, others went out, but basically the church stayed in Jerusalem. And then a group of Christians got together up there at Antioch. And they said, hey, we're supposed to be witnessing to the world. What had happened to the church in Jerusalem? They had become problem-centered rather than power-centered. They got all concerned down there in Jerusalem about whether or not Gentiles ought to be allowed in the church. They had a big council and had everybody come in to talk about whether or not you had to be circumcised before you could be a Christian, that you had to become a Jew before you could be a Christian. They became a problem-centered church, no longer a power-centered church. And you know what happened? They died. And the headquarters of the early church under the leadership of the Spirit of God moved to Antioch. And it was in Antioch that they were first called Christians. Why? Because they loved each other and they loved the world. And they sent out Paul and Barnabas and Mark, Timothy and Titus, and began to evangelize the whole world. Down Jerusalem, they were just sitting there talking about problems. Up in Antioch, they were carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. My friends, my dear beloved friends in this church, we, for the sake of God himself and the sake of a needy world, better pattern our life and our church 
after Antioch. Power-centered, person-centered in Christ, reaching out to the whole world. Hills to climb? Oh, sure. Look at Paul in prison, in difficulty, in shipwreck, all kinds of difficulties. But they changed the world. I don't believe it's an accident by any means that one, Psalm 122 follows Psalm 121 because they sang these in sequence as they moved up to Jerusalem. And here's the closing word. Because the first verses of the 122nd Psalm, listen to what he says. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet, hear it? Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. They made it to the top. They climbed the mountain to the house of God and to the city of God and their feet whom God whom God had led and directed and prevented from falling, their feet now stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. We've got hills to climb out there in the future, some small, some big, some we don't even know about yet. But my friend, we're to be moving forward, Antioch-like, reaching out to the whole world. Problems? Yes. Scale them, climb them, move on. Our feet will stand in the new Jerusalem. Thanks be to our great and gracious God in whose name we commit our lives and our church and this service. Now I invite you to trust him today. Come join the pilgrimage. We're people on the march. We're people on the move. We're not a settled community. We're not a big fortress. We're just a little clearing in the jungle. And it's time to break out again, break new ground, move on up the hills of faith out there in the end of the future. So I invite you to trust the Lord as your Savior this morning. Come join the pilgrimage. What do you have to do to join? Just join. You don't have to go down to Jerusalem to get permission from somebody. You don't have to go through some sort of spiritual litmus test. Just come on. Whosoever will, Jesus said, may come. So come on. Some of you are Christians. Feel God would have you in this church to be a part of this community. Not the only Christian community in this city by any means. But these are the people God's brought together in this place to do a special task for him. And if God's leading you to be a part of it and help each other, encourage each other along the way, And along the walk, you come. The invitation is God's invitation, not mine. The appeal is his. I merely voice it. But I do appeal to you to trust the Lord as your Savior, to come be a part of his church, maybe to come for prayer and recommitment of your own heart and life, return to your seat privately, whatever you want to do. This is God's word and God's invitation to you today. Let's stand. Let's sing. You come. (laughs) 